You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for October 17th, 2021, the first Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 7, and Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Our first lesson is taken from a passage towards the end of the book of Job in the Old Testament. The thing to know about Job was Job was a good guy. And not just in the colloquial sense of he was a lot of fun to hang out with and he always settled his own tab. Job, I mean, was good, deeply good, blameless and upright is what the book says. One who feared God and turned away from evil, it reads. And this is the spark that lights the flame of Job's legendary trial and suffering, well known to so many of you. He is innocent. His suffering, told in the book's first chapters, the loss of everything that he owns, the deaths of all of his children and of his wife, his own debilitating illness. The point of the book of Job is that all of this cannot possibly have been deserved by Job. It cannot be explained away as cosmic justice of some kind. There was no way that he could be said to deserve what happened to him. This is the book's foremost assumption, and it's what makes it one of the most penetrating and mysterious accounts of the problem of evil ever written in the ancient world or the modern one. Now, Job's misery is made worse by subsequent arguments with three friends named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The book says that initially they just went to be with Job, and it says that they were silent. If only they stayed silent. Good advice for many of us. You don't always have to have anything to say, actually, to someone who's in pain. Because what they say to Job only makes things worse. They try to explain his suffering, to make it make sense to him, to make it reasonable. And they do so basically by saying again that either he deserved it, or if he didn't deserve it, then perhaps his kids did, or perhaps his wife did. And Job, to his credit, says, no, that cannot be true. We did not deserve this. And he demands an answer, not from his so-called friends, but from God. And that's where our first lesson, which Rick read, picks up. God's response is not, yeah, your friends were right. You really did deserve this, or your kids deserved it, or your wife deserved it. God's response is, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Not exactly more satisfying as far as answers go, but it's certainly different than, well, you deserved it. Job's answer to the question, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, of course, being, well, I wasn't. I wasn't there. And neither were we. This is the book of Job's response to the famous question, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is, we do not know. And I believe that that answer has only very rarely been improved upon in the ensuing thousands of years which have intervened between us 
and Job's authorship. We just don't know. Either our finite minds cannot comprehend it, or the answer has yet to be revealed or unveiled to us, or both. The book of Job leaves it open. The fact is, you know it and I know it. There are a thousand ways for one's life to go off the rails, right? More ways than any one of us can comprehensively or completely plan for, no matter how hard we try. Bad things happen to each and every one of us. Some of them we bring upon ourselves, at least in part, very rarely, completely. But some, indeed very many, I think, are like those in Job's case. We really don't bring them upon ourselves. They just happen. We're just living our lives, and one day we get sick. Or a friend betrays us. Or horrible mistakes get made. Or our spouses die. Or kids die. And not because we deserve these things. Not at all. They just happen because, well, we don't know. We don't know. Because we weren't there when the Lord who spoke to Job out of the whirlwind laid the foundation of the earth. This is a first and indispensable part of any response to suffering. We don't know why. We all do well just to be silent, as Job's friends started out being. The second part of a Christian response to suffering is Jesus is God's own response to it, not ours. Jesus, in whom God subjected himself to Job's lot, to life in a world like Job's, in a world like ours. In the passage just before our gospel lesson picks up this morning, Jesus is riffing on a truth, which if any of you have been listening to Reverend Elizabeth's, uh, Father Peter's and my podcast, you'll know Jesus has been trying to get through to the disciples <laughs> on, uh, for some time at this point in Mark's gospel. The truth is that the Messiah, the Davidic king whom they believe will restore the fortunes of Israel is not going to come in the way that they expect him to. And he's not going to win victory in the way they've imagined he will. Rather, Jesus tells the twelve, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. And he says things like this to the disciples over and over and over, and they keep pretending he hasn't said it because it just doesn't fit with their image of a Superman or the Terminator, right? Some guy who's going to come in and just blow the Romans to smithereens. And they have no idea what it means that after three days he's going to rise again. So they just pretend like he didn't say it. But he keeps saying it because this is what the love that is God's own nature looks like in a world like Job's, like ours. It's mocked and spat upon and 
ridiculed and killed. And then on the third day, it rises again. See, that which we call God is something like inexhaustible life, the power of inexhaustible life being poured out continually, being given over, given away continually from what we call the Father to the Son, from the Father and the Son to the Spirit, and back to the Father, and then again to the Son, and from the Father and the Son to the Spirit, and back again, over and over and over. This perpetual cycle is pouring over, this pouring out of life, ineffable and inexhaustible. And this life is poured out in something like the same way into that which is not God, that which is, that is to say, us, okay, this world, creation, everything that is, from the mountains to the valleys to the neutrons to the electrifying sound of jazz music, everything that is, is because God is pouring life into it, bringing it into being all of the time, life without which it would just flicker out into nothing, not just fade away, but it's just like the TV's turned off, click, gone, without God giving it life. Something like an electrical current flowing into a light bulb. You stop the current and the light goes out. That's the way creation is, and if God stopped creating us right now, the world would just flicker out into nothing, just turn off, like the television or like you turned off a light, gone. And God pours this life even into creation when it misfires or disobeys or rebels or resists. God doesn't turn off the light when we decide to resist him. In having been God's will mysteriously to bring about a world which is not straightforwardly, directly, immediately, simply the self-expression of God's will. God's creative activity is less like that of a painter, right, who may have a vision of something she wants to paint in her head and then puts paint on the canvas. It's, it's more like it's more like the activity of a really excellent novelist who creates characters of real depth and complexity and doesn't have a ready, doesn't make the characters just so that they'll fit in a ready-made plot, but rather only brings the plot to its conclusion through actions and events which somehow accord with who the characters really are. A novelist who doesn't bring things out of the blue, but rather allows the characters to grow and to flourish, even if just on the page. Never makes them artificially upend their personalities. This life of creative, unconditional, constant self-gift, this life of love, this is what love means in God's regard. 
Love across every conceivable impediment, hostility, resistance, division, whatever, is exactly what we see in Jesus. It sounds abstract, but it's what we see in Jesus' life. This is what characterizes Jesus' love, not his exceptional niceness. <laughs> the Gospels give us precious little evidence of being exceptionally nice. It, it says Jesus is always giving himself away. He's always giving himself to those who need him. He never stops. He's always pouring himself out, 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 out. This is the closest expression possible for a human life of the unconditional and swerving gift of being, which is God's business as a creator and God's own life in Trinity. Jesus is human and divine, and so his human life takes on the divine shape. And in a world like this, it looks like a life which is betrayed and mocked and spat upon and killed, and then on the third day rises again. It's as though God in Christ was saying, I know life is hard here, and it's liable to be harder the more like me you are, not easier. And that's a shame, but it's true. And it's as though God in Christ says, I know all of this because I saw it through to the end. I saw it through to when one of my closest friends betrayed me, when the people I thought loved me abandoned me, when I suffered an unjust trial and an unjust death, and before it suffered the loss of the consciousness even of myself. See, the Gospel of Mark ends with an excruciating scene where Jesus is on the cross dying, and he, he goes back to the Psalms, which he would have learned as a little boy, and he takes a line from them. He says, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is as though his awareness, his perception of the one he called Father is blanked out for a moment. And this is the heart of any Christian response to suffering because it shows us the depths to which God is willing to plunge to be with us no matter what. Even the depth of feeling abandoned by God, feeling like God doesn't even have the courtesy to tell you, as he told Job, where were you when you laid the foundation of the world? Those moments when God is just silent. God was so devoted to us that he wanted to feel even that. God was so devoted to being with us in the midst of the evils which have somehow been made possible by the way he laid the foundation of the world that he suffered even God abandonment. See, the God of Jesus Christ might begin with where were you? right? But he follows that up by saying, here am I. And then he points to your life. And he points to your death. And then he points beyond both of them. And he says, here I am. You weren't with me when I laid the foundations of the world, but I am with you, no matter what, and to the end. And I, I want for you to know that whatever it is that you have suffered 
or are suffering or will suffer, God has been, is, and will be with you. Even if God has drawn so close to you that you can no longer perceive him. God may not give you the answer to why your trial took place. You're very likely, like so many of us, like Job, to be told, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? But God will do one better. May not give you an answer, but will give you a solution. God will give you himself, his own presence. And the good news is that after three days, he will rise again. Every time. Always and forever. Just as he said. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.